Gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. My name is Nick Gavinden, and we are going to talk about a lovely bevy of footballing content today from this past weekend. But I am joined by a man who did not get transferred from Arsenal to Turkey this weekend and is going to be wearing the number 67. It is Nathan Strauss. That's true. It's me. Oh, we're switching up the order of introductions today. I like it. And I'm also joined by a man who was not sent off for violent conduct this weekend in Seville. It is Caleb Rhodes. Hello. I'm a very peaceful Quaker boy. So (laughs) (laughs) you don't have a you don't have a direct line to the Pope like uh, Lionel Messi does. Uh, I do not. I think the Pope probably is going to have a word, though, after what he saw on the pitch the other day. I imagine that Messi has like, you know, one phone for business, one phone for his personal life. And then he has like a secret like flip phone that like some dude in a suit brings him or no, some dude in like a cassock brings him. No, it's like, <laughs> like um, knocks on the door, and then like um, <laughs> the dude is like a it's like a small black flip phone on a pillowcase, and then he knows like that's the phone call. From it's, the Pope. it's like you know how JFK used to have like the normal phone on the Oval Office desk, and then the red phone, which was like a direct line to the Kremlin. I'm imagining it's something like that. Yeah. Either way, you know, we're starting off this podcast potentially in a, in a blasphemous fashion. We'll let you decide, but. We should get There's in. no blasphemy in the church of Frank Lampard's a fraud, but anyways. Oh, that is true. That is true. There is only hot takery. But we should get things started in the Premier League. It was a season-defining week for a few clubs in the league, especially towards the top half of the table. But let's begin with what was set to be the biggest game of the season, and it ended up being the biggest dud of the season in Liverpool versus Manchester United. It was a nil-nil draw at Anfield. Liverpool Football Club have yet to score a goal in the Premier League in the calendar year of 2021. And this point sees United staying three points clear at the top of the table with Manchester City looking like they're going to be leading the Premier League in about a week or two. This was the fifth big game this season that has ended up in disappointment, obviously following Chelsea, Tottenham, the Manchester Derby, Liverpool versus Man City, It just seems like these big games fail to deliver this season. And once again, this was a highly anticipated clash that left us talking about a bunch of other miscellaneous topics on our Zoom call and not exactly the football on the pitch from these two. This game was just incredibly disappointing. And I will shout myself out for predicting that it was going to turn out in a nil-nil draw. Um, Although I predicted that that United were going to set up a lot more conservatively than they did uh liverpool looked like they had minimal motivation or energy after like the 65th minute and uh there just weren't really that many high quality chances liverpool had a lot of shots but not too many of them were on target united have sort of lived and lived or died by the play of bruno fernandes and he had a a really off day and ended up getting the hook in the 89th minute as well so all in all, it was a, a pretty disappointing game, but lucky for us, we get to see it again this weekend in the FA Cup. <laughs> I mean, the only positive from this game was watching Tiago be like three tiers above every other player, you know, taking it in total. I think Liverpool feels slightly aggrieved 
not to have put the game away in the first half. But at the same time, I don't think they really deserved anything more than this draw. I think the entire front three was rather poor. Sala in particular offered nothing. Meanwhile, Firmino just made pretty much every bad decision every single time he had the ball. As I said several times on our Zoom call, which as you mentioned, Nick, resulted in us talking about a whole litany of other things like Tenet. Um, and <laughs> like, you know, it's bad when we're talking about like Christopher Nolan films involving kind of like time warping. Like that's, that's how we were in purgatory in this game. We just wanted it to end. And also the, uh, the odd quality of Manchester United short design. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Like when, when I was, fo- we were focused a little too much on the fashion of the kits and not the fashion of the play. Um, and I think a lot of that is down to Liverpool's forwards looking kind of abject and seemingly having no link up with the wide backs of Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold that we saw last year. On the Manchester United side, I think this was exactly what Ole wanted, right? Get through the first half and then every minute that Liverpool aren't scoring in the second half is another minute where Manchester United can grow into the game a little bit. They created two solid chances that Allison saved, but hey, they were in first place entering this game, and they leave this game still in first place, so job well done. Yeah, I think United should actually be, and I think you're right, Caleb. I think this is exactly, if, if, you, if you had explained to, if you came back, if you, let's say like you were the protagonist in Christopher Nolan's Tenant, <laughs> and you, you came back from the future and you explained to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that the result of this game was going to be a nil-nil draw. He would have absolutely taken that. I think, however, that Manchester United, while there weren't a ton of quality chances, you have to say that United had more higher quality chances in, in, in this game than Liverpool. You think of the Bruno Fernandes shot on the penalty spot in the second half, as well as Marcus Rashford on the breakaway in the second half where he could have cut it back to Cavani and he didn't. Instead, he took it. And Liverpool are sitting now in fourth place after spending a lot of the season at the top of the table. They haven't scored a goal in the calendar year of 2021. And for a front three that is so lauded, that is really concerning. So I, I have three short points on Liverpool, and they kind of build towards a grander point as to where I think the season is heading if Liverpool don't address certain concerns. First of all, Liverpool need to buy a center back in this window. They need to go out and need to be working now. Get agents on the line. They need to be scouting players. They need to be looking how, at how players can fit into their scheme because playing Jordan Henderson at center back totally throws off any fluid dynamic this team has going forward. Henderson is the key cog to unlocking the right side of the pitch. He covers for Trent Alexander-Arnold going forward, and he supports Mo Salah in the attack. Henderson needs to be playing in midfield for this team to succeed, and having to use him as a makeshift center back totally throws this team off. Secondly, I love Thiago. I love watching Thiago in the Liverpool shirt. I think he's easily one of the most quality midfielders I've ever seen play for the club, if not the most quality midfielder. He is the right player at the wrong time for this team. And what I mean by that is if you watch the extended highlights back, if you're a team out of form, you need to be making decisions quickly. You need to be moving the ball fast. You need to be getting into the box at volume and with high intensity. And Tiago, while he places his passes 
so well and he helps unlock players like Andy Robertson and Trent, what he does is he kind of slows the play down for Liverpool at the moment. And while that can be good when your forwards are in form, right now he's 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 opening them up for, you know, Salah and Mane to take a little bit more time decision-making. And we saw that with his balls into the feet of Firmino in this game too. So I think that can all change if you play Thiago a little bit higher up the pitch. Right now he's kind of playing as a lone six, as a lone DM in Jordan Henderson's position. I think if we played Thiago higher up the field, we allowed Henderson to play alongside him, he would be far more effective than trying to play him into form in a team that is so out of form right now and making it so that our play is really stagnant. The third thing is, is that this game, Liverpool not collecting three points at home against a title challenger totally opens the door for Manchester City just to start to walk away with this title in January and in the second half of the season. So I think this result is super concerning for Liverpool. They absolutely need to change things up against Burnley. I actually appreciated seeing Shakiri in midfield. I thought it gave them a little bit more impetus going forward. I thought he actually played well with Thiago. That link up looked pretty promising. So hopefully Jordan Henderson plays in midfield on Wednesday and Liverpool can finally put the ball in the back of the net and get their 2021 rolling again. Because right now it's looking like they won't even make the top four at present with the way that they're playing. Yeah, and before we move on to to Man City, uh, I wonder if maybe my hot take of the day is that Liverpool should drop Salah and play Minamino up top instead for their next game. Because Salah has been so, so bad over the last couple of games that if he weren't a star and a fan favorite, I think there would be a lot more uh, fans clamoring for him to maybe start a game on the sidelines instead. He, it could just be that he's a little tired and fatigued as well. And it's entirely possible that maybe he's been dealing with, you know, some of the longer term effects of COVID for all we know. All in all, he has been, you know, another big disappointment over the last couple of games. Maybe, does anyone have any other comments on Manchester United from this game? Or do we just want to move? To- I think it should be worrying for Manchester United fans that they've not won a game against a top six club quote-unquote this season and if you're gonna win the title you need to come into these games and it's good that they got a point but you need to come into these games and make a statement and they have yet to do that this season against the likes of Arsenal against the likes of Manchester City against the likes of Liverpool so that is a worrying thing if you're a Manchester United fan and the fact that Bruno who has been so central to everything for them offensively has in particular been absent in all of those games against top six sides. I believe he has one goal against top six opponents and no assists. And I think that goal was a penalty in this game against Liverpool. He had a 61% pass accuracy. Most attacks were breaking down as soon as they got through him. And I think as good as he is in general, he needs to be able to dominate big games against makeshift center back pairings. Anyways, a very frustrating weekend once again for Liverpool fans. Sorry if I sound a bit flustered. It was definitely a lot to take in as I've been thinking about this game in the past few hours. But anyways, let's move on to undoubtedly one of the highlights of the season so far. And it came from a team that we have much maligned due to their lack of attacking prowess in this game. Tongi and Dombele for Tottenham Hotspur displayed that in full with a magnificent outside of the boot effort against Sheffield United in a 3-1 win. It was the clinching goal for Spurs. Going to be the goal of the season. 
I imagine. Nathan, this is one of those moments that the Premier League is going to use to market the product for a long time to come, and they should. Absolutely. And and you sort of criticized me in the chat this afternoon for declaring too many different types of goals as bangers, but this was undoubtedly a banger. It was the kind of inventiveness that, as you said before we started recording, uh, reminds you a little bit of, of prime Luis Suarez in that it's just a finish that you really have never seen before. The outside of the foot chip um, with the ball going in the opposite direction as the man um, totally stranding Aaron Ramsdale uh, and looping in at the far post. If it doesn't get goal of the season, then we must have a better goal than that in store in the next couple of months because uh, that was fantastic. And Spurs looked pretty good in this game. And yes, it was Sheffield who are obviously the bottom side right now in the league and are still a win's a win for Spurs who are, you know, just one point behind Liverpool now. Yeah, I think this was a really excellent goal, as you guys mentioned. I did not expect that Ndombele would be the person to have scored such a goal. Um, But I think it's a testament to Mourinho's coaching that he has completely reinvented this player. Because you have to remember that at Lyon even, Ndombele wasn't known for goal scoring at all. He had one goal in his last season in Ligue 1. And so he's become a much more attacking player at Spurs. Um, And I think a lot of credit should be given to Mourinho for taking essentially an entire season to create this midfielder that has really been, I think, one of the top players, not only for Spurs, but in the Premier League this season. The fact that he's totally been able to take that, you know, what we thought was the detriments of Mourinho man management and come out on the other side looking like a completely reinvigorated player. And this is the guy, right? This is the guy that Spurs fans wanted when they signed him from Lyon after that incredible breakout season. And I was always thinking about, especially when, you know, he was making his his debut for the French national team, that the Premier League wasn't going to be prepared for someone with the all-around skill of Tanguy and Damale. He's the sort of player that, like, I would want at Liverpool. You know, a, a man who's going to bring the ball up the pitch. He can defend a little bit. He can connect the tissue around him. He's looking like an all-around threat for Spurs. And the prince that was promised, you know, as their marquee signing last season. Well, quick shout out to Tangi and Dombele there. But perhaps we should talk about the team that as a whole is really rounding into form, ready to take pole position in the Premier League. Manchester City, their eighth win in all competitions in a row, a 4-0 drubbing of... London side Crystal Palace behind two goals from none other than John Stones, who I believe had never scored in the Premier League before, at least for Manchester City, but perhaps for Everton as well. This team is starting to look a little bit scary. Tell me what you guys are making of Pep Guardiola's side right now. Yeah, you were right. He hadn't scored in 192 games, and then he scored twice in around 50 minutes. City have had a couple of games in hand for the majority of the season, they're two points back of United right now. They have Gabriel Jesus back up top. Raheem Sterling got involved in the goals, scoring a really nice free kick. There's only so much you can take away from a 4-0 win over Palace, but this run also includes a victory that had us questioning Frank Lampard's you know, career against Chelsea. City are very much the form side in Europe right now, as you mentioned last episode, Caleb. And of course, eventually... You know, Aguero is going to be back and fully fit as well, which is going to make this team even more lethal 
and uh when city when when this when the well-oiled city machine is fully flowing um there are very few sides in the world that are prepared to stop it and for that reason city right now on 538 are favored to win both the premier league and the champions league yeah, I think you're right, Caleb. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. The City team is scary. We haven't seen them drub opponents, absolutely dominate opponents that often this season, aside for Burnley, who they always dominate. But this was the first time where it felt like our City are back to where they can just turn up and deal mid-table Premier League opponents a 5-0 loss without even getting out of first gear. When you look at, you know, we were thinking about who could City bring in in the transfer window to bolster their squad. It turns out that they already have those players at the club in the form of John Stones, who right now, in my opinion, is the form player in the Premier League. And also, I think we need to mention Ilkay Gundogan looking like, you know, his peak Dortmund Ilkay Gundogan days. He has four goals and six appearances now. And this guy is looking like he's absolutely humming alongside Kevin De Bruyne, alongside Jao Cancelo, alongside Rodri and Fernandinho in that city midfield. And obviously De Bruyne had a highlight assist in this game. And it's looking like he is rounding into form after, you know, some would say a disappointing start to the season by his own standards. So, yeah, this city team, I have them right now as the team that's probably going to end up winning the league, especially if you Liverpool and United can't sort out their inconsistency issues. And like you said, they're looking frightening at present. And I think the thing that's most scary to me is the fact that this team, arguably the team they put out at Palace is arguably not remotely their strongest 11. Like I think Rodri probably starts over Fernandinho most days. Who is their left back? I'm not sure. Cancelo, I think is probably better than Walker at this point. And then Bernardo Silva has been quite poor all season and had another kind of anonymous display at right wing today. So this team has room to grow. That is very bad for other Premier League teams that like Manchester United seem maxed out. Other sides like Liverpool that are kind of like struggling to live up to their level. I guess my question to you guys is, you know, we, we've talked about Guardiola in particular as kind of taking on this evil Emperor Palpatine like visage this season. And so I wonder if we analogize further, Manchester City is kind of the Death Star team right now. Like what is the the chink in their armor that can get exploited? Or do you think that they've actually figured out a durable system for pretty much the first time in Guardiola's tenure? I think the way that they've organized this defense in the box system, if you look at any like the heat maps of their defenders, it sort of resembles a rectangle, not necessarily a flat back four. I think that's really unique, especially it gets the most out of Zhao Cancelo when he drifts into those midfield positions. I think it's really tough. I think Guardiola, you know, he's he's outgrown the empire visage sort of, and now he's he's put on his first order cap and that he's turned to the Death Star into you know that five pronged like planet weapon destroyer that like can shoot from like any you know talking about like in the in the seventh star wars in the force awakens when they like turn that entire planet into the death star but my point is that this city team has multiple methods in which to break down opponents and also multiple methods in which to defend yeah and i think the, the another threatening thing is their ability from set pieces i think three of their four goals this weekend either came from a set piece or from the aftermath of a set piece. I don't know. I guess if they have, if they have a weakness, it's exploiting the fullbacks as, as you said, again, the, the word on the street is that 
Pep has 300 million with which to play right now in the transfer market, um, which, you know, gets you anywhere from three to five good to great players. City are, are going to come back, come out at some point, and they're just going to announce the signing of some more obscene talent. So I don't know. I'm scared. The tough thing is I just don't, I look at their schedule and I don't know who they're dropping games to, right? Because Crystal Palace at home, in his, historically speaking, in the last you know four or so years, has been a bogey game for them. You, know, you remember the Andros Townsend wonder strike a few years ago when, when Palace beat them 3-2. And obviously this season they had the 1-1 draw at, uh, at home to West Brom and they had the 5-2 drubbing at home at the start of the season to Leicester. But since then they've totally locked locked down the ship, battened down the hatches, whatever other nautical imagery I need to paint for you. It just looks like they're totally impregnable. In years past, we've seen them completely implode in the Champions League. And I, I look at, you know, the teams, assuming they beat Gladbach, I look at the teams that they could face in the future that are more kind of what we might imagine is easier matches. But do you think this team is as susceptible to losing to a squad like Sevilla or Dortmund or Atalanta as they were last year? Or do you think they've like actually put behind mental issues as well? Like beyond think, just being good defensively, do you think they're mentally good as a team? Right. I think we have to see how John Stones' form carries over into Europe. Because I think what's been key for the City team is that he's come in, not only has he been rock solid technically as a center back, he's also been a voice of leadership at the back that they've lacked since company left, since David Silva left, obviously in midfield. De Bruyne is someone who's always going to lead by example, but I think City have missed, you know, that catalyst, that voice who's always, you know, checking in on certain players, making sure they're doing their jobs because Guardiola systems are really tricky tactically and there always needs to be that person who's, you know, shouting, getting in everyone's ear, making sure they're doing their jobs. And I think Stones, you've seen that, like, he's come back into this team and not only has he come back in this team, but he's come back in this team to be a vocal leader and we have to see if that carries over into Europe because I think a lot of their collapses have been because of a, um, a fragile mentality in recent times. Well, should we talk about the vocal and strong leadership of <laughs> Ronald Koeman and, and Lionel Messi? In the, oh, no. in the transition. I want you guys to give me your, like, I think I'll be just as harsh on this team, but I kind of want to hear, like, your takes on this terrible, terrible loss before I kind of unleash my, my own emotional frustrations. Before you unleash your wrath, Caleb, we should address that Barcelona went down 3-2 to two after extra time in the Spanish Supercopa final in Sevilla to Athletic Bilbao, a rejuvenated Athletic Bilbao headed up by their new manager, Marcelino, who's only been there for a few weeks. They beat Real Madrid in the semifinals and they ended their historic week by beating Barcelona uh, through a wonderful Inaki Williams goal in, added time, in extra time. But it has to be said, two defensive lapses by Jordi Alba in particular at the back. And once again, Barcelona revealing that they <laughs> their weakness over the course of the past three years has been their inability to defend set pieces. Nathan Strauss, this was Barcelona's first opportunity to win silverware since 2018. They had been on a good run of form. It looked like Antoine Griezmann had finally found a way to settle into this team. His body language was totally different. He had been scoring goals, being the spear in attack, and instead now we're left here with them losing another big game 
two more mental lapses in defense and a Lionel Messi red card for violent conduct that screams that the Argentinian is just tired of the situation at the club. So, I mean, it's hard. I don't want to take away from what Bilbao did or were able to do because I think they're a really well-coached team. I think Marcelino is probably going to be a very sought-after manager in the near future. It's kind of incredible that, that Valencia let him go and i think if it weren't for the whole peter lynn situation he probably would have stayed there for a little while longer he is also i just want to say about marcelino he he was also on the short list for the chelsea job before they appointed frank lampard so his career could have taken a whole different turn yeah i mean he's only 55 he's, he's only 55 he has almost 20 years of top flight managerial experience in spain so it wouldn't surprise me if you know this atleti team can sustain their form if another club comes and knocking but Komen managed this game just incredibly, incredibly poorly. Um, they were, you know, Barcelona went up 2-1, and then in the 88th minute, he brought on Pjanic and Braithwaite for Dembele and Pedri. I guess, you know, if you're looking to lock down a game, um, makes sense. But nonetheless, that also took off, you know, the two most mobile players on the pitch, aside from Messi, which in extra time just really haunted Barcelona. Um, Griezmann, I thought, played pretty well. And Jordi Alba, it was such a mixed bag from him because he was so integral in the link-up play going forward, but he was genuinely terrible. Neither Dest nor Araujo on the right-hand side were particularly solid either, and Dest got you know brought off at halftime for Mingueza, who's obviously not a natural right-back, nor do I think he's really you know La Liga standard. And what could have been a big morale-boosting win um, and some silverware for Barcelona turned into kind of a farce. I will say as well, one of the stats that came up after this game with Messi is that this year he has been taking statistically more shots per game than he has at any point in time in his career, but they have been worse shots from worse areas of the pitch. So it seems to me like he's getting a little bit desperate. Um, and I think we saw some of that frustration taken out in what could have been a double sending off, but ended up being just a red card. His first in 752 appearances for Barca. Yeah, I think on that red card, that just compounded the misery at the end. The thing I am going to say is that the person who reacts is always going to get sent off, you know, regardless of what you think about the person who instigated the uh, the contact. The other thing is, is that Messi, historically, throughout his Barcelona career and throughout his Argentina career, has always taken brutal punishment from opposition players who've essentially spent the entirety of 90 minutes trying to foul him. He's always taken it on the chin. And I think it's easy to do that when you're winning. It's easy to take all of the the physical punishment knowing that at the end of the day, your team is good enough to get a result. And this red card just screamed to me that, you know what, I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of losing. And I'm so tired of losing and also taking all of this abuse from these Bilbao players who were playing a pretty rough game. I just think that this was, you know, a culmination of a lot of pent up frustration from Messi about all sorts of things and primarily about the fact that he's taken all this punishment only to see another trophy uh, slip away from his fingers. I'm very conflicted on on how to feel about this game. We were literally seconds away from securing, as one of you, I think Nick mentioned, our first silverware in two years. Once again, Komen really has some terrible instincts when it comes to in-game management. When you're trying to like nail down a game, you either throw on multiple defenders that can actually just do the defensive work, 
or you make your more sort of defensive minded, but not necessarily defensive subs a few minutes early. I just don't think putting on two players in the 88th minute set up the team for success, especially when he could have brought on Umtiti for Dembele if he really wanted to lock things down. And also, clearly, Bill Bow were creating all of their chances through set pieces, which is how they scored the equalizer. And they'd already scored a similar goal from a set piece that got ruled out for offsides. So terrible moves. And then, of course, once we entered extra time, we had just taken off all of our, as you mentioned, most mobile players. He kind of gave up the game and then prevented us from succeeding. Interestingly, in talking about Messi, he had a relatively muted game, almost the entire game until the red card incident. Yeah, he was on the other side of the pitch for Griezmann's second goal. Right, which is why I think this could have been a very good win because it was essentially Dembele and Griezmann showing that they can create offense without necessarily needing Messi to create offense. But instead, we don't get to talk about that storyline at all. And now we're going to have to deal with the fact that Messi has a multi-game suspension and all of the good work that we've put in for the past few weeks is worth nothing now. And I think, Nick, you had hinted at this, that you think what we'd seen from Barcelona in the last few weeks was kind of not really... I called it a catfish, I believe. Yeah, you called it a catfish. (laughs) And I think, I mean, I think you were found correct here in that the best way I can characterize this game is in the last few years in the Champions League, Barcelona have always come out strong, but then given things up when it mattered most. This was like a two-legged Champions League tie in 120 minutes. No, I agree. I think this is totally a microcosm of what we've seen from Barcelona since, you know, that game away at Roma in 2018. And obviously there's been the results at Anfield, the results against Juventus this season, the results against Bayern Munich, which was seen as a culmination of things, but it looks like those issues have still continued. And my point is that, yes, I think Koeman is the wrong manager for Barcelona at this time. However, I think his poor management, in-game management, totally accentuates the issues that have plagued this club for the past two or three years, maybe even beyond that. The recruitment issues that have left Barcelona having to play Mingueza and Araujo in an important game like this, and also the mentality issues that were lingering post-Enrique when Ernesto Valverde took over, and clearly when Setien was at the helm, the mentality of the team totally just collapsed um, in early 2020. And I think that's just continued with, you know, the appointment of Kuman, who's never been a great or who's never had great man management skills. You look at his time at Valencia and you look at his time at Everton. And I think it's really disappointing to see that from someone who is a supposed club legend that he can't really you know, navigate the current situation of what he's been dealt with. And I think it's not totally a Kuman problem. It's a Barcelona problem. But Kuman being the wrong man at the, at the wrong time totally accentuates everything. I will say we have a Copa del Rey game coming up against Cornella, which is a third division side, I believe, that happens. Is that an ice cream cone? <laughs> no, I mean, it's about five minutes away from the Camp Nou. Yeah, but they 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 actually beat and knocked out Atletico Madrid in the first round. So unfortunately, they're not as big pushovers, perhaps, as we would hope. But I think that will be a game where Komen will have the freedom to rotate and try some things out in ways that I think he has to if we're going to get ready for this PSG 
game coming up. And as I've mentioned before, Puig, I thought, coming off the bench in extra time once again, was one of our most positive players of any Barcelona player that played at all in that game yesterday. And I think we're going to have to start seeing more of him because we have reached a bit of a dead end, but the season does not end. And Komen will have to take responsibility for, you know, another 20-odd La Liga games and will have to try to get past a superior PSG side. That is the state of FC Barcelona right now. Certainly some worrying things if you are a fan of the Blagrana, but we are going to head over to Italy to close our show. We're going to check in on Syria, which I think we haven't done our due diligence in checking in on our Italian friends as often this season, but we're going to do so now. A huge statement victory for Inter Milan over Juventus. It was 2-0. Nathan, this to me felt like the result that Inter fans and us as well, because we have predicted them to win Serie A this season, were expecting from the likes of Antonio Conte and this incredibly talented Inter Milan team. It looks like they've shaken off those huge disappointments from earlier in the season when they got knocked out of the Champions League in quite humiliating fashion. And it looks like now they're primed to take a real run at rivals AC Milan at the top of the table. Yeah, and I think a lot of the credit for this game goes to Nico Barella, who had you know one of the more dominant games that uh, I've seen in Serie A this year. He's only 23 years old, but if you look at his past map, um, he was really pinging the ball around from all corners of the pitch. And I think this Inter team still has places where they can get better, particularly center back. Like I don't think you know Alessandro Bastoni is elite yet and i think Shkinar and devry are you know solid if unremarkable and obviously ashley young is no spring chicken as a left wing back but all in all this was a a good win for inter but really a terrible loss for juve who are putting out a team that just does not look anywhere near as threatening as you would expect from a juventus side it's a little bit weird to see john luca frabada as a starter in this team and <laughs> The same way that I would have said that I, that I pleaded for the, for for lenience for Mikel Arteta in the early days of his job, I suppose I should be doing the same thing for Andrea Pirlo. But it just doesn't look like he quite has the knack for uh, management yet. And I, I mean, I know that they are they have a number of talented players and they're capable of getting results, but it just doesn't seem like there's any dynamism to this Juventus team that are now ten points off of the league lead. Yeah, Caleb, before we get on to your thoughts, I just want to say that I think this Juventus team are are will look like they're willing to work from a, for one another. They look like they're pressing together as a unit, but that seems to be the only thing that they're capable of doing particularly well. Because like Nathan said, Caleb, this Juventus team is plotting at worst and boring at best. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think that Pierre Lowe, who's this kind of legendary figure of Italian soccer archetype for the deep-lying playmaker would play an incredibly boring 4-4-2 formation when in charge of Juventus. But then I look at their squad and I'm like, I'm not sure that much else I could do. Like, who does he have coming off the bench? Weston McKenney, who beyond the fact that he's American, is not like a Serie A winning midfielder. Dejan Kusilevsky, who I don't even know what position he plays best, nor do I think he knows. Bernadeschi, who has been 
bad for years now, in part because he doesn't really deserve a central attacking role on this team, but he also doesn't offer that much as a wide back. And so he's just a bad fit. I don't know, very uninspiring side, which I think we also saw coming at the beginning of the year, but I'm not really sure what they do from here. And I think it's, as Nathan mentioned, kind of encapsulated in this kind of random player uh, for Bata getting a bunch of minutes. Um, he's like the Mingeza of Juventus, <laughs> which <laughs> is not really a compliment. On the Inter side, they were excellent. And finally, perhaps without the distraction of Europe, this is all they really have going for them. Um, and this is all that sort of Lukaku and Martinez at all have to look forward to. And so I think they're going to keep dominating this league because what else do they have to put their energy into? Yeah, and I think I want to highlight a few more performances. I think Marcelo Brozovic was incredibly integral to everything good that Inter were doing in the midfield. Great, finally, great games from Ashley Young and Ahraf Hakimi. And I also think Lukaku has gone under the radar as being one of the best strikers in the world. And I think he he did everything but score in this game. He was everywhere. It was a real Roberto Firmino type performance from Lukaku in that he did everything well except for find the back of the net. And he's done that plenty for Inter this season. But lads, let's move over to the red side of Milan and discuss the current league leaders of Serie A, a team that, you know, we were skeptical about. We were wondering whether or not they were catfishing us. But it seems that AC Milan are here to stay. They recorded a 2-0 win over Cagliari today. Zlatan Ibrahimovic was back in the goals following an injury. And it looks like they are set to sign Chelsea's Fikayo Tomori to bolster them at the back, as well as experienced striker Mario Mandzukic coming in on a free transfer. Caleb, I know you've been skeptical of this AC Milan team and their bona fides, their minerals to sustain a title push this season. Where are you standing right now as we're about halfway through the Italian Serie A season? I mean, they lead the league. That's good, I guess. I still can't really describe why this team is doing so well. Like, yes, they have a kind of mercurial talents like Ibra, who has been like in and out of the team a little bit. And yes, they have perhaps the sort of fearlessness of youth. They're not like really dominating teams. They're just finding ways to get these like 2-0, 2-1 wins in a kind of very unobtrusive fashion. Based on the evidence, I don't see any reason why they can't continue to do this. I just still don't quite understand what exactly they do that's so amazing. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that, that makes sense. But I mean, on the other hand, like they've only lost two games this entire season, one of which was to Juve and the other of which was when they put out basically their youth team in a meaningless game against uh, Lille when they had already secured first place in their Europa League group. I think you're right in that it's a combination of, of the youth and the experience. Ibrahimovic not only had two goals today, but also had another typical Ibrahimovic like scorpion kick pass that came off in, in typical Ibra fashion. And the fact is they won this game 2-0 despite Alexis Salamakers getting two yellow cards in six minutes after being subbed on. I would trust an AC Milan title challenge more than I would trust an Inter title challenge at this point. But the fact of the matter is there's seven points that separate those or six points rather that separate the two Milan clubs 
from the rest of the pack in terms of Napoli, Roma, and Juve. And uh, it looks like in the San Siro's last year, I believe, the title might be going back to Milan. I think it's also important to note that they've kept four clean sheets in their last five games. They have one of the best defensive records in the league. They've only conceded 19 goals and they've scored 39. So a goal difference of 20, which is quite impressive, especially considering we we don't think they have like the most talented squad in the league. Simon Kajer and Alessio Romagnoli are their two center backs, which is not like, you know, the elite center back pairing that I think of when it comes to title contenders. But Frank Kesse in front of them has been so impressive as a box-to-box player this season, as well as, you know, Sandro Tonali, who I think he's moved to his dream club in AC Milan, and he's absolutely delivered for them in that partnership with Kessie. So I don't know. I think they can definitely sustain the push, and I think signings like Tamori and Manjukic just to help provide some cover in the situations where they have had to put out youth players this season, like Kalulu at right back, that's going to go a long way in helping them. Yeah, I feel comfortable saying that the title will end up in Milan. I don't know which Milan, but in Milan. Either way, that is going to be our show this week. We're going to be back potentially at the end of the week, potentially at the beginning of next week, but certainly we are going to be doing a transfer roundup show next week as the January window hits its climax. But with that being said, I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time.